The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Welcome to Fathom. My name's Chris. If I didn't get a chance to meet you, I'm the pastor here. Good to have you this morning. Um, uh, We got to get down to business today. So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, would you please grab it and open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel 16. You can open a phone or a tablet there. Uh, There are hardback black Bibles under every single chair. You can open those up to 1 Samuel 16. That would be found on page 238. 238. If you're online with us, there's a little Bible tab. Get you to 1 Samuel 16, if at all possible. Uh, Because today's text is a difficult text. Uh, It is a difficult text this morning. Uh, In fact, I googled this passage this week and it showed up on a blog as one of the most difficult verses to deal with in the Bible. So uh, we're going to have fun with it, okay? Uh, Most preachers, and I don't know, I mean, obviously I don't know every preacher, but I, I went on a bunch of different church websites and looked at their first Samuel series and most preachers skip this, this section of scripture. Uh, they just do. I'm just being frank. Okay. They do. And I think it makes sense because uh, this is sandwiched. This passage today is sandwiched in between two very famous sections in uh, for Samuel. We covered last week, uh, Samuel going and finding David, the son of Jesse, right? The, the last of the sons forgotten about. And then he anoints him with the horn of oil as the next king of Israel. And there's that uber famous verse for Samuel 16, seven for the Lord sees Not as man sees, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart, right? And so that's that's preaching gold, right? That's like memorize that verse. That's inside out kind of verse, okay? Um, And that's a big deal. That's a big deal story. And listen, next week is a big, huge deal story, okay? Next week in 1 Samuel 18 uh, is the most, I'm gonna say this confidently, This isn't pastoral um, preacher exaggeration. Okay, this is no exaggeration. Next week's story is the most famous story in the Bible. More, I'm serious. More people know the David and Goliath story than know the Christmas story. Tell me I'm a liar, right? Like this is, I mean, this is like a big deal text. And so I understand why our text today can sometimes get overlooked because it's sandwiched between these two juggernauts. But the text today is really important and difficult. Now, now here's why it's difficult. It starts in verse 14. So 1 Samuel 16, starting in verse 14, here's how the text reads. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. So there you go. That's why this is a difficult text, okay? This is a tough one. And we're gonna dig into it and figure out what it means, but but it starts with the spirit of the Lord departed from this guy. Like it left him. God's spirit left him. And so we're gonna talk about what that means. But maybe even more disturbing, it then says that a harmful spirit torments him. So harmful spirit torments him. And did you notice the three words in the middle there? That harmful spirit, where is it from? From the Lord. All right. So does God send harmful spirits to torment people? That's what we're going to talk about today. That's why this is tricky. But 
But that's actually a side note to something that I think is going on deeper here. And so what this text, I think, is primarily about is a doctrine called the providence of God, God's providence. So we're going to talk about this theology, this doctrine called providence today. And and the term providence, the exact term providence, is actually not found in the scriptures, okay? It's a developed doctrine, just like the word trinity is not found in the scriptures. That's something that's been developed out of biblical theology. So has the doctrine of God's providence. And when I talk providence, I think uh, the, the doctrine is usually referring to God's ongoing relationship with his creation, how, how, does, how does God, how active is God in our day-to-day lives? That's what the, the doctrine of providence tries to address. Like, what's he up to in our day, in our lives, in the details of how we live? And there are some common errors in how people tend to think about God's relationship to his creation. There's probably more, but I'll just give you three to kind of start. Uh, some... Some believe in what's known as deism. Deism, okay? Which, and deism essentially teaches that God or some power, some higher power out there, created the world. He, he created it. He created all things. And he, he's kind of like a watchmaker. He built the watch. He spun the watch off, up. He started it into motion. And now he's hands off, doing something else, hanging out somewhere else. Like he is far and he is distance, distant. Yes, he did create all things, but he is hands off and uninvolved. And the world is just kind of doing its thing. That's deism. It's deism. Uh, another kind of mistake, I would say, on how God relates to his creation is that some would believe that, that things happen by chance. Not deism, but like chance or, or randomness. This is very popular in our culture today. Events in our world are really just up to chance. Kind of luck, right? Like, like, like luck or superstition or, or coincidence, right? Cross your fingers, cross your toes, knock on wood, touch blue, make it true, like do your thing. That's that follow baseball, right? Put on the same socks every se- every day for an entire season. That's people who believe in randomness and chance. Randomness and chance. This is actually a huge deal. Uh, watch any Disney movie. That's pretty much what this is. And then finally, and this one's a little less um, prevalent, but I think it's insidious in how it shows up. There are some who believe in an impersonal fate an impersonal fate or like determinism. And this will show up in like pop culture, like the force in Star Wars. It's this, or when people say the universe is out to get me. You ever hear that? It's impersonal, but it's this force and there's fate. And we're, you know, it's like, don't tempt fate. People will use that kind of language. And essentially in, in that kind of deterministic worldview, we, there's a big, che- the world is a big chessboard, and there's these pieces that are moving around, but it's impersonal. We have no agency of our own and fate will guide us in some way. But biblical theology teaches none of these three things. Biblical theology teaches God's providence. That's how the world works. Now, providence means, I'll just define it like this. Providence means that God is personally and continually involved in all created things. 
He's personally, so he is involved. He is not distant like the deists would believe. He's personally involved and he is continually involved. That means that he is involved in all aspects of his creation. He sustains his creation. He cooperatively works with his creation and he directs his creation to fulfill his ultimate purposes. So it's not determinism as in like he just kind of sets us all in motion and we're just robots and we have to do what he tells us. It's more than that. It's, it's personal direction that he gives us. We call it providence. And we're going to work through this doctrine of providence that I believe we see in this text. And I believe that there are things that we can learn from it and apply from it together. So let's dig in to our text. Once again, chapter 16, starting in verse 14. Now, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold, now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. Verse 17, So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well, and bring him to me. All right, let's, let's dig into this together. It starts in verse 14. I've read that twice, but 14 is actually a companion verse to verse 13. 14 and 13 must work together because verse 13, we ended with this last week. Uh, we saw the spirit of the Lord rush upon David. That's how we ended his anointing. The spirit of the Lord rushes upon David. And then today we open with the spirit of the Lord departing from Saul. So these work in tandem. They're meant to mirror one another. The spirit is rushing upon David. He's going to be the new king. And the spirit is departing from Saul. He has been rejected by Yahweh as king. And, and he's done this because Saul was disobedient multiple times in the text. Multiple times when God has given him clear instructions, Saul has disobeyed God. He's been obstinate when called out on it by the, the prophet Samuel, ultimately not heeding his warning to repent. And so the king who would not submit to God is now receiving judgment from God. That's how we are meant to read that beginning part about the spirit of the Lord walking away, leaving, departing from Saul. It's meant to be seen as divine judgment. That's the idea here. And we'll talk about that a little bit more, but let's talk real quick about this harmful spirit, okay? Uh, if you are reading the ESV, it says harmful spirit. If you're reading like NIV or some other translation, sometimes it says evil spirit and evil spirit. Uh, both, I think, are fine translations. Neither, no, no problem with either. You can say evil or you can say harmful. Um, but let's talk about this. What does this mean? What does this mean? Well, um, modern scholars, many modern scholars would like to reduce the idea of the evil spirit to merely a psychological or mental disturbance. That's how more, more modern scholars will want to demystify this passage by, by kind of saying in non-spiritual terms, what Saul is experiencing is deep psychological or mental disturbances and even the pits, dark pits of depression. That's how they want to explain away an evil spirit. But I would just encourage you, like we always say when we're reading uh, God's word, it cannot mean for us what it does not mean for them. That's, 
That's a good rule of how to read God's word. It cannot mean for us what it did not mean for them. And this did not mean in the ancient Hebrew mindset, just a mental disturbance. Now hear me, Saul certainly seems to exhibit some of those things as a result of this evil spirit. He certainly becomes distraught. He certainly becomes disturbed. He certainly falls into a depression and needs something to help him with that. But that is not biblically what is at the root cause here. Okay, this is a harmful spirit, an evil spirit from the Lord tormenting him. This text is presenting an external power that's afflicting our brother Saul. Now you might say to that idea, like an evil spirit from the Lord, that's terrible. And listen, it is. It's terrible. What kind of God would do something like this? Yeah, we have to wrestle with that question in this text. So I wanna do that work. What, what do we do with a God who's causing, or we might say allowing for, or even just using an evil spirit to torment Saul. What do we do with that? And I think this cuts to the quick of what this pas- why this passage is difficult, but why this passage is important. And it's here I want to make my first point about God's providence. See, God's providence can be seen in tragedy. This is a tragic situation. It's it's tragic, and God's providence can be seen in it. Because it, listen, in the scriptures, in, in, in the Bible, the Lord is sovereign over everything. Over everything, even our hardships, our struggles, our sufferings, our tragedies, whether they come upon us or they come out of us, he is sovereign over them. The world wants to tell you that evil and good are two opposite and equal forces that are in a cosmic battle and we'll see one day which side wins. And that is not how the Bible portrays reality. The Bible portrays reality as not uh, evil being opposite and equal to God, it portrays evil as being something that is under the almighty and sovereign hand of a good and loving God. God is in control of every aspect of his created order, even evil. So he removes his spirit from Saul and he gives an evil spirit to him to torment We just can't tiptoe around it. I don't want to softball you with that. You you have to stomach that a little bit, wrestle with it. I think that idea raises a couple of questions, to me at least. The first question it raises is this. Does God still take his spirit away from people? I mean, I got to... I got to deal with that piece before I even get to the weird evil spirit thing that's on him, tormenting him. But it's like, God, God removes a spirit from Saul. So does that still happen? Like, can you, can you lose the Holy Spirit? Can it be removed from you? Well, I think it's really important to understand how the Holy Spirit works in the Old Testament as opposed to the New Testament to be able to answer that question. 
Because in the Old Testament, before the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the Holy Spirit would sometimes show up, come upon a person, empower them, or protect them for a special circumstance. But hear me, it was pretty rare. It didn't happen very often, even in our scriptures. And not everybody, even the most faithful and devout follower of Yahweh, received the Holy Spirit. The Spirit would come and go depending on the season and the person's response to the Spirit. Sometimes the Spirit would show up in ways that seemed a little bit weird. Like he shows up on Samson, a womanizer. Like that's a weird moment for the Spirit to show up on a judge. He's not holy. He's not devout. Saul, our brother here, had some flashes of brilliance, had some flashes of, of just awfulness. And so the Spirit comes and then the Spirit goes. And now David's got the Spirit. So I think part of this is interesting. Psalm 51, David wrote these words after being caught in sin with Bathsheba. This is his response to being caught in sin with Bathsheba, having her husband Uriah killed. And I wonder if he's writing these words thinking about Saul. Psalm 51, uh, 51, 10 and 11. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Those are words of desperation from a man who does not want to see God's spirit depart from him because he's seen what it looks like when it happens. So that's how the spirit works in the Old Testament. Kind of comes and goes. It responds to our response to it. But now, in a post-resurrection new covenant world, there is a fuller work of the Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two, when God's church is established, the Holy Spirit falls on his people and every Christian is filled with the Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit did not come in the same way that God promised he would come under the new covenant. So listen, if you are a Christian, if you have submitted your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior, if his blood is the sacrifice of atonement needed to purify you and to give you his righteousness, if that's your story, then the Holy Spirit does not come and go based on how you're doing with him. And praise the Lord for that because it's January 22nd and I'm betting that you haven't read your Bible every day like you said you would December 31st. Now, some of you are type A and you've been hanging with us, but I'm just saying like, Right? We're Janu- it's January 22nd. And listen, the things that you want to be different about yourself this year so that you will pursue Jesus more closely this year have probably already started to verge off the rails. And thank God that his spirit does not depart you when you start to screw up again. Or we would be a spirit devoid people. But listen, if you are a Christian, he dwells in you and seals you permanently. So it's different. And so I would say, no, God does not take his Holy Spirit from people anymore. But then the other question that comes from that verse that still is more difficult is this. Does God still send evil spirits to torment people today? 
This one's tougher, I think. Does he still send evil spirits to torment? Well, I think the gut reaction is for us to say no, but I would like for us to do a little bit more thinking and working in this because in Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 5, we find a story about a, a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. And if you know the story, Ananias and Sapphira, um, the text says they are filled with the spirit of Satan and they agree amongst themselves to test God's spirit and God uses that as a warning and an example to the early church. They're killed. So that's post-Pentecost, post-resurrection, and that, that's a weird story. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we studied this a number of years ago as a church, but 1 Corinthians 5, there's a man in the church in Corinth who the text says is committing incest and adultery, and they're boasting about it. And Paul commands the leaders in Corinth to, quote, deliver that man over to Satan to destroy his sinful nature and save his soul. Ultimately, hand him over to his evil desires, his evil spirit, in hopes that he will get so sick of being sick that he might repent and return to the church. But I think maybe the most compelling New Testament evidence of this is in 2 Corinthians 12, where we find this text from the Apostle Paul. Paul says this, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So this is Paul, the church planter, the missionary, the great, maybe the greatest Christian ever. And God sends a messenger of Satan to harass him. Anybody got that in their theological perspective? Right, like God's doling out demons to our boy Paul here. That's Paul. Like I get Saul, right? I get that. I mean, bro's been disobedient. I get the judgment. Like, I'm all about salt. Like, yeah, take the spirit, give him the evil spirit. I'm down with that. But like Paul, all right? That's Paul here. What is going on here? And, and by the way, the messenger was to keep Paul from the sin of being conceited or pride because of how great the, re so it's like he, like Paul got a great revelation from the Lord, like scripture downloaded into his brain. That's how great the revelation is. And instead of getting prideful, he gets a messenger of Satan about that. His Bible study was so intense that God gives him a demon. That's and did you notice that right in the text, it said a thorn was given me. That means Paul didn't ask for it. That means Paul didn't cause it. Like Saul had caused this. Paul was just given it. And this is why I think this is for us today, church. This is why we can't skip passages of scripture because tragedy, God's providential tragedy is very often given to us. Listen, you've been given some thorns. And you didn't cause them. You've been 
you've been given some tragedy in your life and you didn't ask for it. But this text is teaching us that just because you didn't ask for it, it doesn't mean that God's not gonna use it. Every single, like if, if, if we turn this mic on and every single one of us could come up here and testify, give testimony to the messengers of Satan, the thorns that we've received, whether they are self-inflicted wounds or others inflicted wounds, we would be here all day. I'd miss my flight three in the morning tomorrow. I'd miss my flight because we'd be sharing all day long of the hardships and the struggles and the sufferings and the storms and the evil spirits that we have been given And we might not use that language. Like we might not call them messengers of Satan like Paul would, but it would seem to me that God does allow these things today. Now, hear me, no longer as judgment like our boy Saul experienced, but now he does so with a purpose. The purpose is so that Paul wouldn't sin. (laughs) The purpose is our good, ultimately. It's to protect us and to usher in his glory. So this is the first point I think is real heavy and hard, but important for us that God's providence can be seen in our tragedies. But there's more in here. Let's keep going in verse 18. One of the young men answered Saul, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son, David, who is with the sheep. Remember where we left him last week? And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. Okay, this, I think this section gets really brilliant. I think it's really important to understand this, but one of the guys in Saul's entourage just so happens to know about this youngest son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is out with the sheep. Now, we, you maybe just read that and you're like, okay, that sounds, doesn't sound brilliant at all. If you were a first century Jew reading this, you would say, what? And if you paid attention to the 50 minutes that I yelled at you last week, you would say, are you kidding me? Really? Jesse forgot about this kid in the field last week. And now some random dude hanging out in the palace with Saul is like, hey, I know a guy. That's what just happened here. This is what happened in the script. It just so happens to know about this. Listen, this kind of stuff doesn't just so happen. They're not hanging. Saul and his entourage aren't in Bethlehem. Just so you know that, they're not like hanging out in a little town of Bethlehem. They're in a city called Gibeah, Gibeah of Saul, 30 plus miles away from Bethlehem. And he just happens to know about this little runt kid out with the sheep. I mean, you would... The text is almost screaming here. Do you see what the hand of the Lord is doing? 
Some random guy just knows about David. How is it that David uh, just so happens to be filled with God's spirit when Saul just so happens to have lost God's spirit? And David just so happens to come to this aide's mind and David just so happens to have all the necessary skills to help the current king's suffering who just so happens to have been recently rejected as king. Oh, and David, by the way, just so happens to have been anointed as king. Do you see this? It's my second point. God's providence can be seen in his strategy. It's, I mean, you see his hands in our our tragedy, but you can see it in the strategy here. Part of God taking his spirit from Saul and giving him a harmful spirit to torment him is to further God's strategy to get David to the palace. He's at work. I've taught this before about providence, but, um, but the way we've ta- taught this historically is that God works in, with two hands. God tends to work with two hands. One hand is visible. We can see it. One hand is invisible. It's much more difficult to see. So, so God often works through his visible hand of miracles. That's how he works. Burning bushes. You see that thing. You're like, well, a bush that is burned and is not consumed. That might be something supernatural, right? Parting the Red Sea, throwing fire and brimstone from the sky. In our day, maybe you're not so into the fire and brimstone thing, okay? Healing people. Like unexplained healings. Giving people visions. Man, the Lord just put you on my heart this week. Oh, that's strange, right? Like, like answering our prayers. These are visible ways that God works. But then there are these more subtle ways that he's working. We call it the invisible hand of his providence. And that's what's at work here. The text, it's like, it's begging us to say, don't you see the hand of the Lord at work here? I mean, I've historically illustrated it like this. My wife was in the first service, so I can't point to her exactly. But um, my wife, Marcy, has an affinity for really bad Hallmark movies. <laughs> okay? It's, it's good counseling for me. Anybody else want to admit that they love Hallmark movies here? Come on. Safe place. Safe place. Put your hands up like we aren't Baptists. Let's do this. All right? <laughs> Put them up high. We're not going to judge you. Uh, that, that, no, that's a lie. The elders are taking notes for church <laughs> discipline purposes, okay? Yeah. Let's be real. Let's be real here. Hallmark movies are the worst, okay? They are really, really bad. Bad cinema, some might say, okay? But, and and here's, the, here's my real problem with them. They're all exactly the same. Every, that's why they're good? Uh, <laughs> same. That makes it for bad, bad writing, bad producing, terrible acting. Okay. But let me give you a rundown. Here's how they go. I've watched these things. Okay. So I know this. Here's how they go. This is every Hallmark movie ever written. There's a big city girl who works for a real estate developer. Okay. She just so happens to end up back in her small hometown where there just so happens to be a historic family property that she's trying to develop into condominiums, right? Okay, and the homeowner just so happens to be her childhood crush and he's a struggling children's book author. (laughs) 
love love spark starts to form. And as the love spark begins to grow, they just so happen to find themselves in a moment where they gaze longingly into one another's eyes. And that moment usually comes as a result of an accidental hand touch. (laughs) Or the man teaching the woman how to do something like fish, knead dough, or shoot a bow and arrow, okay? (laughs) This is how it works. Pick one of your three, okay? And by the end of the movie, she has settled into her new, to her new hometown, married to her new husband, and they run a real estate company slash children's book publisher out of the historical home, okay? It's the same movie every time. It's just, is it going to be winter or is it going to be autumn? And I watch these movies, okay, with my wife because I love her. And then I turn on sports once she falls asleep on the couch. But, but we watch these movies, and I audibly will be on my couch going like, are you kidding me? That would never happen. They just so happen to bump into each other at the small diner where his great aunt knows her because she's bussing tables. That would never happen. This is the worst writing in the history of cinema. I've said these things out loud in my, in my house. And, and I, as I say that, I will look over at my beautiful wife on the couch and she is just all a little weepy. <laughs> Saying things like, it's just so sweet, so beautiful. And then she'll say things that are asinine. We should move to a small town. And I'm like, that's not how small towns are. But I ain't no fool. All right. So I go, you're right, sweetie. This should win an Oscar, right? This should win an Oscar. Guys, that's what's going on in the text. It's what's happening here. And we might read it and chalk it up to coincidence because that's what modern people do. But the Orthodox Israelite, in their mind, in their worldview, there was no such thing as chance. Proverbs 16, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Oh, you think that's Old Testament? You, you want to see if there's a New Testament version of it? There is. Okay. Acts chapter 17, verses 26 and 27. And God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him that he's actually not far from each one of us. Hey, memorize that verse because that thing is awesome. Uh, Another question, not about Hallmark. How many of you are not native to Colorado? Just real quick. Much safer to answer this one uh, than to answer the Hallmark question, okay? But, uh, okay, everyone who just had their hand up, you are a part of the traffic problem. (laughs) Just so you know, And if you came here later than I came here, I can say that to you critically, okay? Um, Listen, most of us have moved here. Colorado's kind of on that upward thing. Like, there's a lot of people moving here to Colorado. And so most of you moved here for work, maybe, 
Or, or like you grew up going, going skiing here. And so you're like, ah, oh, when I grow up, I'm going to move to Denver. And that's going to be my thing. So you moved here for the mountains so you can ski and bike and hike and play. And like, that's your dream. Or listen, a lot of y'all moved here for college, right? You're like, okay. Hey. Like you, you moved here for college and, and you've moved here for these reasons. But here's the truth that I want to say in light of God's providence. You didn't move here. God moved you here. God determines the periods and the boundaries. Why? So that we'd seek him and find him, even though he's not that far from any one of us. It's God's providential Strategy. I say this all the time. You live where you live. You work where you work. You play where you play. You have the neighbors that you have. You have the roommates that you have on purpose. It is not an accident. It is not a coincidence. It is not chance. It's God's providence. God is moving David from the pasture, from the sheep, to the palace. He is not yet the king, but we can see the hand of God moving and strategically setting David up to be where he needs to be. This is God's providence, guys. God's providence in tragedy, in God's strategy. Let's finish our text. Verse 21. David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David remain in my service for he's found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took out that lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well and the harmful spirit departed from him. Again, notice how this section kind of sandwiches the spirit of the Lord departs him in verse 14 and the harmful spirit departs him in verse 22, 22. So David shows up and his musical ability seems to do the trick. That's what we see in the, the text. This is the ancient version of music therapy. It's, I mean, do your research. That's what this is. Music actually has an ability to soothe and calm one's spirit. And they're just showing us that they knew that thousands of years ago. It's not a new phenomenon. The Bible is way ahead of them, okay? And the text says that the harmful spirit departs from Saul, at least temporarily, because we're going to see in future texts that it will come back to him. But at least for the short term, Saul finds relief through the music of David. And these verses are where I'm going to make my last point about God's providence. Okay, God's providence can be seen here in his ministry. He allows for tragedy, God's using strategy, and now he shows up in ministry. See, I rhymed today. I didn't alliterate today. You're welcome. Ministry. See, to get David to where he needs to be was part of the providential stuff, but giving him the skills that he needed to have so that he could accomplish the ministry that God had for him is again, part of God's providential work here. And Christian, I would say that this is a model for us and how our relationship should be with the unbelieving world. Okay, uh, the temptation, when we talk about the world, like the world, the out there, the, the evil, broken depraved world. Everybody that's not here is out there. They're in the world, okay? 
when we talk about the world, the temptation for a Christian can be maybe to remove yourself from the world. Right? You've heard the, the phrase, be in the world, but not of the world. It's like, I'd rather not be in the world, so I'll just be away from the world. And so we kind of build up our walls and our barricades and protect our family and listen to our radio and kind of do our thing and just stay away from the world. That can be one temptation. Another temptation is, is to become critical and judge the world. Point out their flaws. Oh, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Which I don't know why hell has handbaskets, but it... <laughs> I'm not sure what a handbasket is, but uh, maybe an Easter basket, unredeemed Easter basket. That's what that is, okay? <laughs> but we can point things out. And we can say, oh, the, the politics, or oh, the education, or oh, the, the depravity, the sin, the promiscuity, the sexuality, and we can just criticize the world and behind our wall just throw things over the wall. But what this text shows us is that we have been given gifts and abilities to minister to the world, to serve the Sauls all around us, even those who have rejected God and been rejected by God. So this is what I think Jesus means when he calls his disciple in the New Testament, the salt of the earth calls them the salt of the earth. Salt in those days was primarily used not for flavor, but as a preservative. To preserve meat from spoiling, you would salt the meat. And so Christian, you were meant to be something of a preservative. Okay, we are, we, we are playing a part through the abilities that we have in restraining, as it were, the full decay of this world. And when we do so, those around us, even those who are abs- uh, obstinately against God and his ways and his, and his reign, even those might find refreshment from us and p- potentially could be drawn into repentance. It's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. It's the kindness, uh, I might say, of God's people that might lead this world in that direction. And Paul says as much in Galatians 6, 10. He says this, So then, as we Christians have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. I looked it up in the Greek. Everyone means everyone. And especially to those who are in the household of faith. He tags that on there. Don't miss that. Like he says, use your gifts and abilities for the church to build up and edify the church. We don't want to throw that out, but it's for everyone. Let us do good to everyone. So guys, this is God's providence. And it's all through this passage. All through this weird, random, easily skip overable passage. Tragedy, strategy, ministry. But when I was thinking about how to close this sermon down, I, I thought about something that I think is interesting. Because um, this, this is kind of heavy theology Sunday as we talk about God's providence. And the fascinating thing is that in the Bible, when we find a, a doctrine like this, kind of a, a heavier intellectual doctrine, the Bible almost always presents that theology in a story. The Bible almost always presents theology in a narrative. It, 
it does sometimes, but, but, but much less frequently abstract the theology up and turn it into a set of propositions that we can systematically study. Rather, it's almost always in a story form for us to discover. And so it got me thinking about God's providence in my life. And like the just so happens things that have happened in my story. See, in the summer of 2001, uh, I became a Christian. I was a teenager. And, uh, and before I, I, I believed in God and got saved, my life was just not going great. It's kind of a wreck. It was, it was angling down the wrong path. And things kind of come to a head in my story when I got arrested for shoplifting. Now, uh, yeah, your pastor has been arrested. Okay, yeah. You're like, I knew I liked this church. Okay, yeah. Watch your purses, ladies, okay? But uh, be taking an offering later. But as, as part of the sentence, I've been sentenced, I had to do 50 hours of community service. That was part of my sentence, doing community service. And they gave me a list of places that I could do service hours, and one of them just so happened to be a church called Sunrise Church, Colorado Springs, okay? And listen, I, at this point, had no interest in Jesus. Wasn't raised in the church, didn't have any interest in him. I just went and cleaned Sunrise Church for community service, and the, the, the custodian would sign off on my paper, and I never went there, never went to a service, never did anything. I just got my hours there. And now, now hear me, a couple years later, maybe two or three years later, a friend of mine invited me to go with him to his youth group. And I wasn't seeking. I wasn't like, tell me about your God and convince me to believe in him. Like, that's not how it worked. He was just like, hey, you want to come to my youth group? And I was like, sure, man, you're my friend. Yeah, let's go together. And there's like a billion churches in Colorado Springs. Like, you think there's a lot of churches, and there's a billion, it's the buckle on the Bible belt, and it's not even close to the Midwest or the South. It's just Colorado Springs, okay? It's just how it is. But as we pull up, it just so happened that he went to the Sunrise Church Youth Group. And then later that same year, a different friend, an independent friend, invited me to go to Young Life with him. And if you, uh, Young Life is like a, it's like a Christian club that meets in kids' basements. That's, that's, I mean, right? Like it's a bunch of people singing songs, listening to some guy preach in a basement. Sounds like a cult, right? <laughs> I mean, it's like, it sounds like our youth group. That's a, we're in the basement or whatever. But like, but listen, I, I drove a Volkswagen van and had dreadlocks at the time. So I was up for it, man. I was like, bring on the cult. I'm in, okay? I'm in to the cult thing. So I go to my friend's basement and I noticed there's like a table as I walked in with like brochures for camp and things like that. And there's a brochure about Young Life. So I pick it up to, you know, get a little reading material of the pamphlet. And I noticed on this brochure for Young Life that the picture of the then president of the organization was a guy named Denny Rydberg. And I just so happened to know Denny. I didn't know him as Denny Ryberg, president of the international youth ministry, Young Life. I knew him as Coach Denny because the previous basketball season, he had been my gold crown basketball coach. And now I'm hearing a message about Jesus in my buddy's basement. There's no Kool-Aid to be seen, so I'm guessing it's not a cult at that point. And I just so happen to know the president of this organization. And I just started in my little high school brain putting together these coincidences in my head. What are the chances that 
the place I did my community service years ago was the same place, the same church that I was invited to independently all these years later. What are the chances that my basketball coach turns out to be the leader of a youth ministry where I end up hearing the gospel for the first time and respond to it? And I didn't know it at that point, but there's another doctrine and it's called the effectual call of God. And that's what was happening. God was after me. That little invisible hand was busy, working hard to woo me, to call me, to move me. And I just didn't know it at the time. See, at the time, it just felt like, oh, man, this is weird. These are some weird coincidences. And at some point, no matter how rationalistic your brain is, you start adding up those coincidences and you're like, maybe it's not. Maybe it's not. I got to get to the bottom of this. And I just so happened to be kind of smart and funny and witty and loud. And so the leader was like, hey, maybe you should go into ministry. I, and so I just so happened to do that. I didn't have any other options. And so I just so happened to go to CCU. And my roommate happened to introduce me to his childhood friend who had just so happened to become my wife one day. And we just so happened to plant a church. And, and that church just so happened to find this facility downtown Littleton with low ceilings. And you just so happened to get here. You got here because your daughter was working at the melting pot. You got here because we've been friends for almost 20 years. You guys got here because I met some of you standing in front of our wooden sign at CCU a few months ago. Like, somehow you got here. You got invited here. You found us online. You saw that wooden sign that we put out for like three hours a week. And here we are. Is it chance? Is it random? Do you think it's luck? And listen, I'm just listening to some of the good things, okay? Because there's a lot of just so happens that end in tragedy in my story too. My wife just so happened to have a long-term illness. We just so happened to have a miscarriage. I just so happened to have a mother who got diagnosed with a terminal cancer. And I just so happened to find myself at one point in the grips of such depression and anxiety that they were worried about me. So like the just so happens, they end, they end in positives, but they also show up in, in really hard and, and tragic moments. So whether it's tragedy or strategy or ministry, I am convinced that God's invisible hand of providence is at work in getting me to this point and in getting you to this point. So listen, the Lord just so happens to have you here today, this Sunday, listening to this message with whatever is just so happening in your life right now. And I know some of those stories, but some are a mystery to me. So I'm gonna pray like we always do. And, and I'm gonna invite anybody who would want to like if you're wrestling with this right now, I just want you to come to the back of the room. No Kool-Aid, no basement, okay? We'll just go to the back of the room, just like we always do. And myself and some others with prayer name tags will be back there. And if you need somebody to pray for you, over you, 
to lay a hand on your shoulder and stand with you and pray. I I'll invite you to come back. I want to encourage you to have courage if there's something and you feel lost in it right now and you're not so sure and it feels like, I'm not sure if I'm still in the pasture, if I'm moving towards the palace, if I've got what it takes to do what I need to do, if there's strategy or, or tragedy or ministry, like I'm not sure. If you feel that, man, why don't you come back because there just so happens to be some people who will pray with you and maybe minister to you and maybe you'll find some relief. Maybe you won't, but you might. The doctrine of God's providence shows us that he is intimately involved in our lives. Even when we don't see him, he's working. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we... It is a good gift that we didn't skip this passage. It is a good gift, Father, that, that in your providence, in your sovereignty, you left this story as hard as it seems, as insignificant as it might compare to what came before and what comes after, but as important as it is for us to hear today. Thank you for that. God, I pray for the men and the women and the students in this room who are processing all these things, luck, chance, randomness. Maybe they see it more deistically. They, they believe in you, but they don't know how involved you are in their life. Or maybe they've just kind of relegated everything to some mystical determinism. Things will be as they are. But Lord, I, I pray that the doctrine of your providence would stoke our hearts to remember that you're here. You're imminent. You're with us and you're moving in us and through us and everything that's going on around us is under your sovereign and faithful hand. Now I pray that, that in tragedy, that would be a warm blanket of comfort for us that when we start to see the strategy of how you are working in our lives, we would all the more have fervor to worship you and to serve you. And then Lord, that you would equip us and give us the ministry that you have, that there would be nothing that you desire from us that you will not provide for us to, to, to accomplish. So God, we, we trust you today with whatever's going on. We ask you Father, through the power of your Holy Spirit to minister to our hearts that we might serve you and serve this world. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit. And all God's people agreed by saying, amen.